You're listening to Bonafide Needs, Season 2, Episode 12. Hi, welcome back to Bonafide Needs. I'm Bill Olver, Managing Editor of the PubK Group. We've reached our last episode of 2023, and like you, we're starting to look ahead to what's coming in 2024. For this episode, I asked our experts at Arnold & Porter to discuss the hot topics on their minds this December and to make some predictions about what government contractors and the council can expect in the coming year. And they didn't let me down. Coming up, you'll hear about challenges to the constitutionality of the False Claims Act, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, new cyber incident reporting rules, Federal Acquisition Security Council supply chain requirements, and some new non-traditional valuation approaches agencies are adopting. We'll also have some advice on what to look for and how you can respond to these developments. Joining me with their predictions are Christian Sheehan, Jace Bourne, Ronald Lee, Tom Pettit, Chuck Blanchard, and Stuart Turner. Hi, everyone. I'm Christian Sheehan. I'm a partner in Arnold and Porter's White Collar Group in D.C., and I'm joined by my colleague, Jace Bourne, who's a senior associate in the White Collar Group here in D.C., and we're going to be talking for a few minutes about what we think is a very interesting issue, which is whether the False Claims Act is constitutional. Yeah, it's a really interesting issue that I think a lot of people would be surprised has some renewed life this year because, you know, back in the 80s, people first started talking about this and it got some traction in the Court of Appeals, at least among the the parties, but all of the courts had rejected it back then. This year, the issue was revived probably in an unexpected way. So back in June, the Supreme Court issued its decision in a case called U.S. X. Rel. Polanski versus Executive Health Resources. Basically, the court held that the government has broad discretion to seek dismissal of relators' key TAM actions. Justice Thomas dissented from that holding. He disagreed that the government had that kind of broad discretion, but he went one step farther, arguing that key TAM suits, in fact, violate Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution, which focuses on the executive's power. He noted um, a few different things. We'll talk about the main two issues today. But he focused on Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2, which is the appointments clause. It basically says that the executive needs to appoint officers that engage in executive function. And because relators have not been appointed, Justice Thomas thought that there was a serious question about whether the key TAM actions were constitutional under Article 2. And since then, we've seen some movement in the courts with parties renewing this argument. And, and that's what we're going to talk about in a little bit more detail today. I will talk briefly about the appointments clause. Uh, I gave the, the high level, basically that because relators are private citizens that have not been appointed in accordance with the appointments clause, that they can't conduct civil litigation on behalf of the United States, which is precisely what the FCA's key TAM provisions purport to let them do. And the Supreme Court has been pretty clear in past appointments clause cases that conducting civil litigation on behalf of the United States is an executive function. Um, And so that's really the thrust of the Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 issue that Justice Thomas called out 
And it's it's the first and main ground that a lot of parties have been moving on, asking courts to hold that the FCA key TAMS provisions are unconstitutional. Um, but there's another clause under Article 2 that comes into play here, too. And I think Christian's going to talk a little bit more about that. Yep. Um, and just before we get there, so we'll talk in a minute. Um, there's been a number of challenges since the Polanski decision to the constitutionality of the False Claims Act. And in each one of these, the Department of Justice, not surprisingly, has filed a statement of interest uh, arguing that the FCA is constitutional. And their primary argument on the appointments clause is that, well, relators don't work for the government, so they can't be officers of the government. And the appointments clause only applies to officers. At least in our view, I mean, that gets it exactly backwards, that if you can't give power to someone who works for the government that wasn't appointed, you certainly shouldn't be able to give power to somebody who doesn't work for the government that wasn't appointed. But that is that is what we're seeing from, from DOJ. So the second ground is the take care clause, when that basically says that the executive has to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And the argument here is that these are folks who are outside of the executive branch, they're not accountable to the president, and the executive doesn't have any real oversight of them. So relators are conducting this litigation essentially on their own. I mean, in particular in a decline case, right? A case where the government doesn't intervene and the relators are litigating the case on their own. The government will argue that they have sufficient oversight, but we think that you know folks that are challenging the FCA's constitutionality have a much better argument there. I mean, there, there are a couple, a couple key facets of executive power that relators are able to wield under the FCA. So they're able to make the decision about whether suit is filed, when it is filed, where it is filed. So that takes the discretion out of the hand of the uh, out of the president's hands and puts it in the hands of private citizens. The executive also has no ability to remove a relator. Their only choice is to take the relator as he or she comes or to dismiss the case in its entirety, which is frankly a pretty poor substitute for removal. And the Supreme Court has been clear in a number of cases that the ability to freely remove an officer is crucial to the executive's ability to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. So that's a high level of the, you know, the substantive arguments. As I said, there have been four challenges so far that have been filed. There's been one where the district court has issued a decision, and that district court in a case in Alabama held that the FCA was constitutional, rejected the challenge. But there have been recent developments in that case that suggest the Court of Appeals might have an opportunity to take that up. So I'll let Jace talk about that. Yeah, so just uh, yesterday or the day before, the defendant who initially filed the motion asking the district court to find that the FCA's key TAM provisions were unconstitutional filed a motion to certify an interlocutory appeal on the question to the 11th Circuit. No action's been taken on that motion. It's pretty new. But if if it gets certified, it looks like the 11th Circuit might be the first one to, to weigh in on this issue. And we expect that more motions are going to get filed. And I think Christian has has some insight on, on a very recent motion that we might have some personal knowledge about. Yeah, so not to toot our own horn too much, but we recently filed one of these motions uh, in a case in South Carolina. And we're fortunate enough to have the support of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce as an amicus. So, and they were they were able to 
dig into really the the history of key TAMs because one of the one of the primary arguments, so I think what Justice Thomas called the principal argument uh, in favor of the constitutionality of the key TAM provisions is that you know key TAMs have been for around for a long time, right? Key TAMs were around in in England at common law, so they should consider that history in assessing whether they are constitutional and hold that they're constitutional. So we think that argument oversimplifies things and that actually the current version of the False Claims Act, there really is no historical precedent for. Um, so I think these details are probably sort of beyond the scope of uh, what we're here to talk about today or what we have time to talk about today. But they are interesting issues that the the court in in our case in South Carolina is going to have the opportunity to take up for the first time because nobody has raised these in the same you know, level of detail that the chamber was able to do. Uh, in terms of what happens next, so these will these cases will play out. The district courts will issue their decisions. At some point, they will go up to courts of appeals. And I think it's pretty likely that the Supreme Court will at some point weigh in on this issue. So in Polanski, there were three justices that indicated they thought that this was worthy of the high court's consideration. And Chief Justice Roberts also asked questions at oral argument that indicated that he too had some questions about the constitutional issue. You only need four Supreme Court justices to grant cert. So we think it's pretty likely that there that at some point the court will take this. Uh, how quickly it does depends, I think, on a few things. I think if there's a court of appeals that holds it on the FCA unconstitutional, the Supreme Court will probably take that immediately. If not, then there's a there's a term called percolation that sometimes they the Supreme Court likes to let issues percolate among the courts of appeals for a period of time uh, before taking it. So if there is not a court of appeals that is you know brave enough to step out on that limb and hold it the FCA unconstitutional and may take a bit more time. And then in terms of you know what the Supreme Court's actually going to do when it gets the case, it's anybody's guess. But I think, there are there are strong arguments. There really are these are strong arguments in favor or that the that the key time provisions are unconstitutional. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that um, we'll be living in a very different world in terms of false claims act practice uh, in a couple of years. Yeah, so I never I never thought when I started this white collar practice that I would um, start becoming a constitutional scholar on Article Two, but Maybe I'm on my way now. Yep, that's right. Uh, it's very it's a different issue than we you know deal with on a day to day basis. So um, nerds find it very interesting, and uh, hope you all do too. I'm Ron Lee, and I'm a government contracts and national security partner at Arnold and Porter. Have you ever stood on a train platform and seen a train in the distance, and it seems to be getting closer and closer, but never actually pulls into the station? That's the way the arrival of the U.S. Department of Defense's cybersecurity maturity model certification has seemed to government contractors, service providers, and perhaps also government officials themselves. By the way, the program is called CMMC. You can bet many people in the Pentagon spent a really long time trying to come up with a catchier name and acronym before finally giving up and settling for the palindrome. In this segment, we'll break down what CMMC is all about and what's on the horizon or on the train tracks for 2024. First, a few fundamentals. CMMC is to be set forth in a proposed regulation expected to issue soon. 
In brief, it's a framework and set of requirements that will enable contractors to certify and the Department of Defense to verify that they are providing sufficient cybersecurity to protect controlled unclassified information, or CUI, in their computer networks. CUI is an important term here because it means that the requirements do not apply to classified information and do not apply to information that is not subject to one form or other of regulatory control, such as export controls, health privacy, or other controlled information. CMMC has been in the works for quite a long time. About two years ago, perhaps in response to industry concerns that the original CMMC version was too burdensome, particularly for smaller companies, the Pentagon went back to the drawing board and reworked the proposal. For the example, the original proposal had five different levels of increasing rigor and requirements based on the sensitivity of the CUI that the contractor had and the harm that would occur if obtained by unauthorized persons. DOD has announced that it reduced the number of levels from five to three and made it easier for small businesses to comply. So with that background, here are a few expectations for 2024. First, the rule will issue as a proposed rule, which means the public will have 60 days to provide comments. There will also be a federal acquisition regulation system rule to support implementation of the CMMC provisions through contract requirements. So if you are affected by CMMC, the first thing to do is to block out some major time once the proposed rule drops to get deep into it. Assess what it requires for your DOD business, how you would comply, how much it would cost, when you'll be ready, and continue what we hope you're already doing in compliance with existing DOD cybersecurity requirements and as new information about CMMC proposals has come out. Of course, DOD could surprise and issue the rule as an interim final rule which means it would go into effect very quickly. Also, if you're a prime contractor, you'll definitely have your work cut out for you. As you know, the agency customer only deals with you and not directly with any subcontractors. If it is on the prime to respond to the solicitation, comply with the requirements, deliver the goods and services, and manage the entire supply chain, including the subcontractors at all levels, CMMC will be no different in this regard. The only difference is that unlike other forms of contracting, both the prime and the subcontractors will have much less experience with CMMC and will be doing a lot of on-the-job learning. And if you're the subcontractor, you're on the hook for everything that the prime flows down to you, even if there are subcontractors further below you that have to perform properly in order for you to be in compliance. Take close care to manage the obligations that you flow further down and to know the obligations that you retained, and of course, to meet those obligations. Um, something else to watch for is the maturity of the third-party assessment regime. At the most basic level of protection, the contractor can self-certify. As you go up to higher levels, a third-party assessment by a CMMC third-party assessment organization, or a C3PAO, is required. The body that certifies C3PAOs has approved about 50 organizations so far, and hundreds more are in the pipeline as candidates. Bear in mind, too, that until the day when AI can do CMMC assessments, humans need to be trained as individual assessors, and their availability may be a rate-limiting bottleneck for some time. Next idea. How can one resist a chance to say something about how artificial intelligence and machine learning relates to CMMC? 
CMMC is about CUI. And of course, AI models will need buckets of information, including CUI, to train on, to assess accuracy, fairness, and safety, and then to operate on. While this CUI largely will not be different from other types of CUI that the contractor possesses and uses, the particular challenges for CUI used for AI is that the use cases are emerging and being adopted and changed so quickly that your CMMC compliance regime will need to be particularly observant, agile, and responsive when it comes to protecting CUI for AI. AI, of course, can also be helpful in generating the documentary artifacts that you're going to need for CMMC, as long as you stay on top of everything. And of course, one needs to take particular care to safeguard against providing CUI to AI tools that are not certified under CMMC. Finally, watch for enforcement. By enforcement, I mean the whole gamut of government actions to test for and seek penalties for noncompliance the scrutiny of proposals, the enhanced focus on the role of CMMC readiness in evaluating proposals, of course, bid protest controversies, audits and enforcement actions, including False Claims Act investigations, whistleblower allegations, and lawsuits. So to close, about the only thing that is certain is that the train is getting closer. And once it pulls into the station, likely 2024, if you have CUI and want to do business with the government, you'll need to have an expensive ticket called readiness to get on board the train and hang on for what could be an exciting and unpredictable ride. Hi, I'm Tom Pettit, a government contracts national security lawyer here at Arnold and Porter. And one thing that a lot of contractors should be paying attention to, in fact, all contractors should be paying attention to, are some recent cybersecurity developments. And 2023 saw a number of cybersecurity developments, with perhaps the most far-reaching one being the FAR Council's proposed rule on cyber threat and incident reporting and information sharing. So this proposed rule includes more requirements that we can cover in five minutes, but at a high level, the proposed rule, if enacted, will require contractors that use information and communications technology, or ICT, to perform contracts or that provide ICT to the government to report security incidents, share related information with the government, cooperate with government investigations, and certify compliance with security incident reporting obligations, among other requirements. Those clauses, if enacted, will apply to contractors that use or provide information and communications technology to perform government contracts, including contracts valued below the simplified acquisition threshold, which is currently $250,000 with some exceptions, and contracts for commercially available off-the-shelf items. So this is a very broad seemingly all-encompassing rule. ICT includes information technology, Internet of Things devices, and related systems and technologies. This expansive definition would include smartphones, laptops, and similar items. In modern times, it's almost difficult to envision a contract that would not fall within this definition. The security incident reporting requirements are probably the most significant obligations in the proposed rule. Many contractors are familiar with incident reporting requirements, including contractors that are required to comply with DFARS 252-204-7012, as well as the new Department of Homeland Security uh, CUI rule. But even those contractors are going to find new obligations if the proposed rule goes into effect. The term security incident is broad, and it includes events that pose actual or imminent jeopardy to the integrity, confidentiality, or availability of information. That encompasses things that would probably come to mind for most people 
like unauthorized access to systems, malware, et cetera. But it also includes certain events that might cause significant heartburn for contractors, including transferring classified or controlled unclassified information onto an information system that's not authorized to store, process, or transmit that information. Any security incident has to be reported within eight hours of discovery, and contractors have to update those reports every 72 hours. In addition to that, the rule requires compliance with government investigations, imposes a series of information sharing obligations, among other things. So what should contractors be thinking about now? Um, well, first, if you perform contracts that involve CUI, review and update your CUI policies and get your information systems compliant with applicable cybersecurity requirements, such as NIST SB 800-171. As you know, I mentioned, transferring CUI to systems that do not meet applicable requirements for CUI falls within the definition of security incidents that must be reported. Also, ensure you're complying with other CUI handling and safeguarding requirements, such as marking CUI. Ensuring information is properly marked will help avoid at least some security incidents. The National Archives regulations implementing the CUI program make clear that an authorized CUI holder must safeguard CUI even if it is not marked in accordance with National Archives regulations in the CUI registry. Contractors should also be assessing what measures they have in place to monitor information systems in compliance with information security and other security-related policies. Contractors that comply with NIST SP 800-171 should have monitoring controls in place, but other contractors might not if they're not subject to those requirements. Also review record retention and related policies. The proposed rule, as I mentioned, imposes various record-keeping requirements. And while it hasn't, the rule hasn't actually been implemented yet, um, it's something that contractors should start thinking about. Also begin to think about subcontractor compliance. The proposed rule includes flowdown obligations. And so that's going to require uh, introducing that clause into uh, subcontracts and, and potentially even monitoring subcontractor compliance. And, you know, some other things that are probably worth thinking about is, uh, and, and hopefully we'll get some clarity on these issues in the final rule, um, but our employee devices. It's not clear from the proposed rule and the FAR Council didn't request uh, that, that industry specifically comment on this issue, but it's possible that the definition of ICT uh, could apply to employee devices. And, and this is something that could be particularly significant, not only with BYOD policies, which a lot of contractors have had in effect for years now, um, but also in the era of remote work. Another thing to think about are contracts that are performed overseas. Uh, and the FAR Council did request input on these specific issues. A lot of countries, you know, the EU certainly comes to mind um, and, and other foreign governments require industry, require companies and persons to comply with a variety of privacy and, and data security requirements and sharing information with the government could potentially conflict with those obligations. The same thing is potentially true of state laws, which could set up potentially, you know, some interesting conflicts. So these are all issues that remain outstanding that hopefully the FAR Council will comment on. Things to watch. Again, this is just a proposed rule. Uh, the comments period has ended, uh, so hopefully we will um, get some more information from the FAR Council in the relatively near future. Um, and one last thing to add is, and I had alluded this to this before, but one last thing to add is that there is a clause that would require contractors to certify compliance. And this is going to apply not just to existing contracts, uh, 
but also past contracts. So the certification obligations are uh, very broad in non-compliance with those requirements, the you know the various requirements that we've talked about here is whether as well as other obligations uh, under the proposed rule uh, could create potential False Claims Act liability and, and present other issues. So um, again, these are all things to be thinking about in 2024, and uh, hopefully we'll get some clear guidance from the FAR Council. I'm Chuck Blanchard, a partner in the National Security Practice. And I think one of the issues to watch out for in 2024 is the renewed interest in supply chain regulation. In uh, 2018, Congress passed an act that created a, an organization called the Federal Acquisition Security Council, or FASC, and authorized it to perform a variety of functions, including making recommendations about uh, orders that would require the removal of products from the supply chain or services from the supply chain if there were security considerations. And the, the, the FAST, the executive branch agency they created, is made up of several uh, officials from the Office of Management of Budget, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, the Office of National Intelligence, the Department of Justice, and the Department of Commerce. And what FASC is, in, is supposed to do is evaluate the supply chain to look at products that are incorporated into U.S. products that are sold to the government, use the intelligence available to the agencies, and then determine whether certain products or even certain suppliers in general um, are not trustworthy and therefore um, can make order that there be a removal of covered articles. So far, there has not been a renew or, or, an, or, such a, an order uh, by FAST, but I, we expect that soon we're gonna start, gonna start seeing some orders. Uh, there was in October, a brand new FAR clause that suggests that orders are coming because this FAR clause said that contractors' responsibilities include that they must comply with orders, including uh, making any necessary changes or modifications to remove any covered article that's pursuant to it, such an order before any product or service is produced or sent to the United States uh, government. So a contractor that may have a supply chain uh, well-established may soon receive an order saying that this component that you're now using that's manufactured in China is now uh, subject to an order and you have to promptly redesign your product to remove this. In addition, the contractor uh, is required to look at a list of all of the orders that are soon to come down and make sure that when they uh, respond to a solicitation, that they can represent that they are not using any of the prohibited articles or sources of supply. And finally, uh, they have an affirmative duty to make reasonable inquiries during, during their entire supply chain to make sure that there's not a prohibited article or source well down the supply chain. So this creates a new compliance obligation that I think companies need to take very seriously. There are also some additional uh, restrictions. Uh, the Department of Defense has issued a DFARS clause that imposes additional responsibilities for information technology that is purchased for inclusion in national security systems. And under this DFAR clause, contractors um, have to have an affirmative obligation to mitigate supply chain risk in the provision of supplies and services to the government. So in addition to complying with removal orders or uh, do not use orders from the FAST committee, 
They also need to take affirmative steps to make sure they have a secure supply chain. And finally, there are some agencies, in particular the intelligence community, that impose even more restrictive um, and additional supply chain requirements. So while Congress passed this law in 2018, and we have not seen much activity so far, the fact that there's been a new FAR clause issued in uh, this last October, and the fact that the FAST committees had several years to operate, suggests to me that we should expect to see the first few removal orders coming down in the next few months, which will create a compliance issue for contractors. Uh, hi, this is Stuart Turner. I'm counsel in the Arnold Porter Government Contracts Group. So, you know, much has been said about the increasing use of other transaction authority by the government to gain contracting flexibility, and that's certainly a reality. Uh, but even within the FAR context, we're seeing fewer standard FAR Part 15 procurements and more new competition and solicitation types, which, uh, you know, seem to be designed to grant agencies more discretion, much as the OTA is, but with, even within this context. Agencies are seeking more discretion and not incidentally, they're seeking to reduce protest risk by limiting records and making uh, information about their procurement decisions a little harder for protesters to obtain. This experimentation in the solicitation forms and even the contract types is facilitated by, of course, the decades long continental drift from procurements using standalone solicitations into task order procurements under pre-competed vehicles. And certainly holding the right vehicle in recent years has you know, become critical uh, it's driven partnership, even acquisition decisions, as companies work to ensure that they're inside the right walled garden when critical procurements are released so they can compete on things they feel the company needs to be uh, involved in. So use of task order contracts facilitates, as we use more of them, it facilitates more non-traditional solicitation designs because part eight and 16 of the FAR uh, procurements conducted under those parts are subject to fewer specific procurement requirements in terms of the staging and what has to be done along the way from offer to award. So under these walled gardens, we're seeing competitions of various time that seek, as I said, to minimize the record. Uh, for example, one, one good example, we've seen several procurements this year, and this is pretty new, at least to me, was that the technical proposal provided by the offers was an oral presentation only. So the presentation could be accompanied by slides, but solicitation specifically said that the written slides wouldn't be evaluated. There might be some limited written submission discussing management or staffing approach or something, but the only actual record of the offered technical approach was the presentation itself in real time. And at least in one case, the agency didn't even record the presentation. When the protester challenged this decision, they argued that FAR Part 15102, which requires recording of oral presentations in a Part 15 environment, didn't apply to this FAR Part 8 procurement. GAO said, well, you know, you do have to keep a record of your evaluation decisions, but no, FAR Part 15 doesn't apply and uh, and you don't have to record them. So in that context, the record was extremely limited uh, by the intentional choices that were approved by GAO of how the agency conducted um, this approach. So one sort of you know consequence of this is that as oral presentations become more important, this can lead to subjective, you know, almost aesthetic opinions about performance uh, in the room playing a role, a real role in awards. So there was a decision last year where GAO upheld an award where the primary technical approach evaluation was conducted simply by requiring the offers to convene a team of their key personnel. And then they were given a technical challenge at the beginning of the meeting. And they had to evaluate the challenge, brainstorm a solution, come up with the most effective way to present that solution to a, a hypothetical agency and then make the presentation in the course of about an hour, hour and a half. 
all of that, from the brainstorming to the discussion of how to present to the presentation itself was done essentially on stage in front of the agency evaluators, and that was the technical proposal. So the evaluation factors in the solicitation included things like teamwork and, you know, the strength of the pitch, like the advertising pitch. And in the end, the protester objected because they received a significant weakness for things like non-collaborative brainstorming and allowing one player to dominate the conversation. And these things seemed way too superficial or aesthetic to, to really support an award decision, but they got a significant weakness for it. And so they said, hey, GAO, you can't do this. Our approach, and we can prove it was sound, it was responsive, it should have been rated highly. GAO said, no, they said they were going to evaluate these aesthetic performance characteristics, and that's exactly what they did. And so the, the, the award stood. You know, this is obviously something critical because when you think of an oral presentation, you think of it as simply a, a means to deliver the technical gravamen of your approach. But in the end, maybe more elements of performance are becoming more and more critical if the only opportunity you have is in that room live in front of an audience. So another limiting approach that we've seen, uh, switching gears a little bit, is solicitations that use a method called, quote, highest technically evaluated offer with reasonable price, end quote, variously called high torp or high terp or hit rop, depending on the acronym that they're using. These solicitations are unique because, you know, instead of soliciting or instead of submitting an entire uh, proposal, the offers submit technical proposals and price proposals under separate covers. The agency opens all the technical proposals, conducts an evaluation, determines which is the highest rated offer, and then opens only the price offer from that highest rated technical offer. All the other price proposals are discarded and never opened, never even seen by the agency. So as a result, this price reasonableness evaluation that they then conduct is entirely in the context of a government estimates, some sort of internal estimate that's not disclosed to the offers. This obviously contrasts to the typical FAR method of determining price reasonableness, which is price comparison. The offers come in, multiple offers are open, the prices are within a range, and if you're, quote, in the ballpark, then you're seen to be reasonable. That's not on the table. The only way to challenge a determination, a price determination under one of these high torp solicitations is to challenge the reasonableness of the agency model. And the agency has a tremendous amount of discretion in how it composes that model, and it's a limited record. You don't have the other offers price proposals to look at. It uh, it becomes a much more limited universe of documents, which is you know, partially the point. And it, again, focuses the determinations, the, the challenge determinations, in places where the discretion of the agency is strongest. So, And we've actually seen these things come together. We've seen at least one procurement where the only presentation technical proposal model was used in a high torp solicitation. So in the end, the record you can just you can see is is very much just a set of agency determinations. And then when you walk into GAO and say, I think that determination is wrong, but you don't have a universe of documents to support and fill in your challenge, it's very, very difficult to move forward with a successful protest, which I think is at least partially the point. So, you know, on a small level, this reinforces the critical importance of presentations. And as these things become more important in solicitations, obviously contractors need to focus on making determinations about how to put their best foot forward, even handed, how to compose their teams. You know, these presentation and aesthetic uh, considerations really do matter and are going to matter more as these things become more prominent. More generally, everybody should be aware that agencies are experimenting with these alternative solicitations. And that when you open up this critical procurement, this gotta win procurement that you've made moves to make sure you're in a position to get, and it looks like nothing you've ever seen before, you gotta consider 
whether it's proper, you know, and if you don't challenge it as in a pre-award circumstance, that's going to be the rules of the road. And that may severely limit your ability to protest an outcome. It may severely limit your ability to put your best foot forward. So you got to be aware and have your, your, your antenna up because they're going to be continue to use these, these methods as long as GAO and other fora continue to endorse them. And so far they have. So this trend is very likely to continue. Bill here again. Thanks again to all of my guests this time. Christian Sheehan, Jace Bourne, Ronald Lee, Tom Pettit, Chuck Blanchard, and Stuart Turner. We'll check back in with them during the year to see how well their predictions turn out in 2024. And that's it for this episode of Bonafide Needs. Be sure to visit PubK's website for information on our Government Contracts Annual Review. For the first time, our conference will be held live and in person. Join us on February 13th and 14th at the Ronald Reagan International Trade Center in Washington for two days of in-depth discussions and networking. We'll have special guests from Arnold and Porter on three of our panels. You can find the link to the registration page in our show notes. To keep up with government contracting and legal developments every day, subscribe to PubK at pubkgroup.com. For additional expert analysis and insights, you can find multiple timely and informative blogs at arnoldporter.com. Thanks for listening. You can find Bonafide Needs at your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and YouTube. You can help us reach more listeners by liking, subscribing, or leaving a review. For Arnold and Porter and the Pub K Group, this is Bill Olver. Until next time. Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold and Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the Pub K Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Bill Olfer and Tina Chen.